Well, friends, it was uh, said of a certain golfer that as he approached the first tee at a particularly hazardous hole with the green almost completely surrounding, uh, the, uh, surrounding the, the green by water, that he wondered aloud if he should use his brand new golf ball. But deciding that the hole was too treacherous, he reached into his bag and pulled out an old golf ball and placed it back on the tee. But just then, he heard a voice from overhead saying, use the new golf ball. Startled and not a little bit confused, he replaced the old ball with the new one and approached the tee again. This time, he heard a voice from overhead saying, take a practice swing. At this, the golfer stepped back and took a couple of practice swings and Feeling a little bit better and more confident, he approached the tee again where a voice rang out for the final time, never mind, use the old golf ball. (laughs) Well, friends, today uh, we are returning to our study of Paul's majestic epistle to the Ephesians and particularly to a timely and rather helpful section of verses which provide for us some very wise and practical advice for our swing of salvation, for how we are to practice to live out our faith as followers of Jesus Christ. I say in part that this is a timely text because Ephesians 5 verses 15 to 21 is actually a sort of summary text, a summary passage, if you will, on the main subject of the second half of the book of Ephesians. And that subject is our Christian walk. The first half of Ephesians, you remember, was all about the doctrine of the gospel. The second half of Ephesians, chapter 4, 5, and 6, is all about the duty of the Christian. Doctrine of Christ and duty of the Christian. For example, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1, Now I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I think the word walk is employed by Paul some eight or nine times in all of Ephesians. He says again in Ephesians 4, 17, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And then finally in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, a few weeks ago we looked at this text where Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. But we need to bear in mind, brothers and sisters, that Paul was no mere podiatrist. That is, Paul was not concerned about our physical gait or our pace in life. Instead, he is an apostle, a sent one, and a herald of God's matchless glory and of his grace, of the power of the gospel of the living Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's chief concern for the Ephesians and for those in Blandon and Fleetwood and Berks County in the year 2022 is holiness. Paul is concerned about our holiness, both as Christians on an individual level and as churches on a corporate level. You see, the walk that Paul is talking about is a lifestyle of personal faith in the living Jesus. That's the walk that Paul is aimed at. So Paul spends the second half of this brilliant little book describing 
what certainly encompasses our conduct and our behavior as God's children, but it actually originates in God's effectual calling and the work of God's grace in our hearts through faith in the gospel. Remember what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but don't forget verse 10 says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Or as he says in Romans 6, 4, Beloved, we were buried with Christ by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so listen, consequently, pastor, the preeminent pastor, sorry, Paul, the preeminent pastor begins this brief review of what he had started to say back in chapter 4, verse 17, and also this transitional paragraph. Again, it's going to both look back and look ahead, and he says this, what Mike, our brother, just read for us, Ephesians 5, 15, listen to the, the word of God. This is the most important part of what I say is what God says in his word. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as we've done this morning, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's God's word. Praise be to him for his inerrant, infallible, and always trustworthy word. Listen, part of the point this morning is that God's work of grace both calls us and wonderfully enables us as Christians to walk wisely, by the power of the Spirit, and not wastefully, according to the appetites and sinful desires of the flesh. Do you have a wise walk or a wasteful walk, brother? Look, back in the first century, in Paul's very own day, the philosophers, that is, the lovers of wisdom and, uh, and the teachers of the day, had a saying, if a Greek wanted to know what you thought, he simply would ask you a question. But if a Jew wanted to know what you thought, he would follow you around for a week. The point is that actions speak louder than words. What we really believe is typically best expressed by how we truly live, not merely by what we say. It makes me think of John's words in 1 John 3, 18, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Paul, the pastor, says to us this morning, walk the walk, don't simply talk the talk. This reminds me of a powerful story that I once heard about a particular missionary to China. This faithful woman of God had come home back to the United States for some time of rest and also to report on God's mighty work through her ministry among the Hindu women. One particular evening, about halfway through her talk at a church, the missionary noticed a woman get up and walk out of the meeting room. 
Maybe 10 or so minutes later, the very same woman returned back to her seat and continued listening listening intently to what she had to say. Soon after the meeting was over, the missionary lady went up to the other lady and asked if she was okay, if she was feeling well, if she had any issues. And the woman who happened to be a Hindu herself, replied, oh oh no, I feel great. I feel fine. I was so taken by what you had to say about Jesus that I went out to ask your driver whether you really lived the way that you talked or not. And when he assured me that you did, I hurried back so that I wouldn't miss out on your message. Listen, friends, that's the power of an authentic life of faith in the transforming work of Christ. Our lives are to be living letters that people read and come to love Jesus Christ. That missionary is what we would call today the real deal. But are we? Her life confirmed the very words that she said about the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, does our life do the same in our generation, in our neighborhood, in our workplace? Are we living letters for Jesus today? Are you walking wisely? Are you walking well? What would your friends, what would your family, what would your classmates or coworkers say about your faith in Jesus? Would you get a good report or perhaps a sobering one? Are you a walking contradiction or are you a living demonstration of the power and potency of the gospel of Jesus. Oh, how I pray that our lives would reflect well upon the gospel of Christ. In other words, do you have confidence in the backswing of your faith? Or perhaps maybe do you have to reach for the old ball rather than the new one? Well, friend, here in our passage from Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 21, I want you to observe with me how Paul underscores a few of the realities of the dramatic life-changing difference that only Jesus Christ makes in our hearts and in our lives. There's no one else who makes the difference like Jesus does. And on one level, I want us to see here at the beginning how trusting Jesus and trusting in the gospel demands a change in three different areas, and we're going to unpack these together this morning. It demands a change, number one, in how we view our time. Secondly, in how we view our life's purposes or agenda. And then finally, it requires a change in what sort of things we allow to control or influence our walk before God. Our time, our purposes, and our influences are all addressed by the Apostle Paul here in this passage. Listen, trusting Christ has consequences. Good, beautiful, and eternal consequences, we know, those of us who love him and know him. The fact of the matter is, Christians are changed people, not simply saved people. If you are a disciple of Christ, you are to be different than you were before you knew Christ. That's just gospel 101. So this morning, I want to point out for you three crucial characteristics, or maybe I would say three non-negotiable rules for the fairway of faith, to help each of us walk the wise and the worthy walk as Jesus' disciples today, all out of God's Word in Ephesians 5. Number one, rule number one, we are to be circumspect 
in our Christian walk on account of the imminent coming of Jesus Christ. Look again at what Paul says in verse 15 with me, please. He says, look carefully. We could use the word maybe circumspect, cautiously, advisedly. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Listen, those who want to walk wisely must aim to make the most of every opportunity God gives us. Careless living leads to carnal living. Careless Christianity is carnal, fleshly Christianity. Someone said long ago, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So we have to aim for godliness if we want to hit the mark of godliness. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Don't waste a minute of your life, brother or sister, for the sake of the gospel. Rule number two, and we'll unfold these each one in turn. Rule number two, we are to be concerned principally, that is fundamentally, about knowing and doing the will of God. We are to be circumspect and we are to be concerned about God's will. Look at verse 17. Therefore, Paul continues, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, those of us who hope to walk wisely and in a manner worthy of the gospel must seek to be preoccupied with God's will, God's thoughts, God's purposes as outlined in the Holy Scriptures and as demonstrated in the person of Christ. You're preoccupied with something. Everyone is preoccupied with something. What holds or grips the heart fills the mind, and what fills the mind flows off the lips. I could tell you what you're preoccupied with. We just have to have a conversation for about two or three minutes. Out of the overflow of the heart, Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks. So our mouth is actually a window into our hearts. And so we are called here to be preoccupied with God's will. We must uh, aim to make progress in understanding God's will. Just keep your uh, finger there in Ephesians 5 and look over with me at James chapter 3, verse 13 and following. There's a number of very interesting passages about wisdom in the New Testament. James 3, 13 and following is one of them. James writes, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Don't contradict your confession. That is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Our lives are to reflect the wisdom of the Word and the wisdom of God's Son. The wise walk is a humble walk before God in His Word, the Bible. But then the third rule before we unpack them, is that we are to be controlled, circumspect, concerned, and controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit as He fills and animates not just your life, but our life. 
my life as a Christian and our life as a church is to be filled to overflowing with the presence and power of God's own spirit. Paul says as much in Ephesians 5, 18 to the end. He says, and do not get drunk with wine. In other words, don't be possessed or controlled by some substance, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart and giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As Paul wrote elsewhere to the struggling and often carnal Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and following, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Listen, if you're a Christian, it's not because you were wise. It's because you were a fool and God's mercy came upon you. God chose what is weak in the world, the same the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." We have a boast, but it's not our wisdom, it's not our wealth, it's not our works. Our boast is Christ and Christ alone. So be circumspect, be concerned, and be controlled. Let's unpack them one at a time. We are to be circumspect or careful in our Christian walk on account of the imminent, that is the soon, return of Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 16, 15 and 16. If I were to, some of you are old school, Uh, a lot of us have iPhones or Androids, we have Google Calendar. If I didn't have Google Calendar, I would be late for 100 appointments every week. Some of you actually carry around a paper calendar, perhaps. Yes, Sherry, yes. What would your calendar say about your priorities? What would your schedule reveal about your values? You see, we make time for what matters to us. Reminds me of an important statement from Jonathan Edwards, American Puritan in New England, who said, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way that I possibly can. Do we have a ruthlessly redemptive view of our time? Redeem the time, Paul says, because the days are evil. Paul says one of the first ways that we can improve our swing of salvation is by making the most of every opportunity because God is worth it and because we're in a world that is characterized by evil. The scripture actually uses a word here, redeem, redeem. We've all heard that word before. In the Bible times, that word redeem has the connotation of buying something back, purchasing back, redeeming it. And the point is that holiness as a Christian or holiness in the church is not the result of careless or haphazard activity. It is intentional. We have to be intentional to be holy. We are set apart from God and we have to ruthlessly protect that or else we're going to be carried adrift, carried downstream by the world. 
We have to plant ourselves in the Word. A helpful illustration of the intensity and the intentionality behind this phrase comes from Paul's own life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Paul describes, if those of you that, that like athletics, Paul uses a very vivid uh, combination of um, metaphors or examples. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that all that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Don't be content just with the participation ribbon. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That was the practice in ancient times. You, you didn't win a medal. You won a wreath. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run, Paul says, aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, shadow boxing. No, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. If there's anything about Paul's life, besides the fact that it was aimed at the glory of God and knowing Jesus, it was that he was intentional in all that he did. Purposeful, intentional to redeem every moment that God gave him as a blessing. One writer poignantly says, the times do not belong to you. Even the hours of the day are not ours, but have been given to us for wise and godly stewardship. You remember back in January, we had a whole month on financial stewardship in light of our building expansion plans. Well, what about our time? It's just as precious a commodity, such a fleeting commodity that God wants us to redeem and to buy back. That writer says, be careful with your time. Use it to serve the Lord and to serve others. Make the most of each moment to to spread the gospel and to bring glory to God, the God of all grace. Listen, each one of us gets the same allotment of time at the beginning of the week. We all get 24 hours in one day. We all get seven days in one week. That's 168 hours each week if the Lord tarries or if he allows us to see the end of the week to please him and to praise him. How diligent are we to redeem the most of that time? Life is a vapor. If we've learned anything of late as a church, it's that life is a vapor. It appears for a short time and then it vanishes away as we spend time together at funeral after funeral. Life is a vapor. It's precious. So how do you spend the precious commodity of time that God has graciously replenished for you each new morning when the sun kisses you? How do you redeem that time? Next to our finances, I submit to you that how we spend the precious gift of God's time may be the clearest indicator to what actually controls our heart. Wealth and minutes. It's interesting that Paul says in a Parallel passage over in Colossians. I've said this several times in this series. Ephesians and Colossians ought to be read together. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I think Paul's saying there is there is a fleeting like sands in an hourglass, fleeting sands in that hourglass of witness. We need to redeem the time in our relationships because these people that die around us who don't know Christ will spend an eternity apart from us and from the Lord. 
So why do we need to walk circumspectly or carefully today as Christians? Well, Paul gives us the answer. It's right there in black and white for us. He simply says, because the days are evil. Now listen, Paul could have used, when he talks about making the most of the time, Paul could have used a Greek word, chronos, in verse 16, but he doesn't. He uses instead the word kairos in verse 16. You see, chronos time is chronological time. We all know that. Just look at the, don't look at the clock. Don't, don't whatever you do, don't look at the clock. I get always the biggest laughs with the, the, the preaching long jokes. I don't know why that is. Chronos time is chronological time, but kairos time is different. It's momentous time. It's apocal time. It's the time of an era, the time that God is doing something significant. In other words, it's kingdom time. Did you know you switch time zones if you're in Christ? I'm not talking about daylight savings. You're not earlier or late to church this week. Paul is talking about kingdom time. Look at verse uh, 9 and 10 of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verses 9 and 10, Paul uses this word kairos, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of kairos. Not the clock, but Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Brothers and sisters, as believers, we have changed spiritual time zones. We're now on kingdom time. Galatians 1 verse 4 says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, the present evil era. According to the will of our God and Father, to Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So listen, as I wrap up this first point, and we're going to breeze on on by here. Walking wisely, practically speaking, means that we are to be extra careful with each moment. To redeem or buy, buy back these precious minutes and seconds for the glory of Christ and for the good of His body. Before Christ comes back, and the day is no longer evil, but is gloriously good because Christ reigns on the earth, and we reign with Him, make the most of each moment. That's what Paul's saying to us. Make the most of each moment. And I don't know about you, but I get awfully convicted when I begin to examine my calendar and look at my schedule. By God's grace, there's a lot that's for His glory, but there's still a lot that's not. Maybe repentance... Confession, accountability, those are some suggestions for ways you can apply that in your life. But now secondly, in addition to our time, please also understand that our walk as Christians is to be focused on knowing and doing what God wants. That's another way of saying understand what the Lord's will is. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now if you've been listening carefully intently and intentionally, maybe you already caught what God's ultimate will is. Were you listening? Back in Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, in particular, we read these words. I'll read them for you again. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. That's God's will. 
to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ, beloved, is the very center and the centerpiece of all God's will for His world. Now, it is not inappropriate to speak of God's will for you or for me or for us, but it must not be God's will outside of Christ, because Christ is the centerpiece of God's will. When most people think or talk about God's will, what comes to their minds or what questions flow from their lips? They say, well, what's God's will for me? Or perhaps, uh, what job does God want me to have in this next decade? Or where should I live? Or who should I marry? Have you asked those questions? I think we all have. But what if that's not ultimately what it means to seek God's will? Why is it that people love to make God's will all about them when it's God's will? Isn't God's will all about God? I think it is. See, those who wish to walk wisely before God and before others must make it a priority to progress in their understanding and in their practice, both knowledge and um, fleshing it out, fulfillment of what God's will is. And I say progress because you never arrive. You never get to the end. He who began a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. We are always people in process, never arriving, always pursuing, always pursuing Jesus. If I'm honest, I think that discovering and doing God's will for one's life is not nearly as complicated as we try to make it be. As a pastor for now 17 years in full-time ministry, I can't even count on both hands and both feet how many conversations I've had about pursuing God's will. And unless I brought it up, Jesus would not have been mentioned. That's a shame. The problem comes when we over-spiritualize God's will. We make it mystical. Like a Rubik's Cube. Hard to figure out. I've never solved a Rubik's Cube. Give it to CJ, he'll do it in five minutes. It's sort of like taking an image that you download onto the computer and then you try to zoom into the picture. And if you've ever noticed, you download an image and you zoom in, the closer you get to it, what happens? The, the picture pixelates. It gets distorted. Well, that's sort of what we do with God's will so often. God's will is clearest at a big picture level in the black and white of Scripture. In addition to God's big picture purpose to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, let me give you a few practical points about God's will for you. Maybe you've been looking for years, what's God's will for you? Let me give you a few of them, because God said it, and I know it's true. Matthew 22, verse 37 and following. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40, these are words you should know. And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Can I tell you what God's will is for you? It is to love him above all things. And it is to love others like you love yourself. Is that something you can apply? Sure it is. You can understand that. You can do that by the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Love God, love others. That's God's will in black and white. Why are we go looking for harder stuff? What about this one? Also from God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Not easy to say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 2 to 7. Paul writes to the church, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. In other words, how you grow up in Christ. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger, is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but in holiness. So, if you're not married, is it God's will that you have intimate relationships with your boyfriend or girlfriend? No, it's not. Now, the heart tries to justify all sorts of things. Well, you know, we've been together for four years. It's not God's will. God's word says it. God's will is for all of us to be pure and to be holy and to be set apart for him. And the only shot we have is for the Son to come and live inside of us. For the Holy Spirit to take over in us. That's the only shot we have. But if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. It will happen. You just got to trust Him. Let's stay in the same book. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 18. Another suggestion of God's will for your life this morning. Paul says here, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You know these verses. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Giving thanks always in every circumstance. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now we often think, well, God's will here is to give thanks in all circumstances. But I think for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you reaches back through all of those commands. Not just giving thanks, but all the ones that come before. That is God's will for your life. It's not a matter of knowing, it's a matter of submitting. I think we often know what God's will is. But what the challenge is, is it's hard for us to walk in it. And apart from Christ, listen to me, if you're not in Christ this morning, it's impossible for you to walk in it. Because you must have the power of Jesus in you in order to walk according to his word. One more text real quick before we move to point three. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says here, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. If you want to know what those mercies are, go back to Romans chapter 1, read all the way to the end of chapter 11. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. There's your God's will for you. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? 
So in other words, it's God's will that you not be conformed to this wicked, rotting, depraved world, but rather be transformed in the renewal of your mind as the water of God's word washes over you and the Son of God takes control of your life, that you be transformed to look more and more like him. Somebody said, when God bolts the door, don't try to get in through the window. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. And somebody else said, you don't have to be listed in who's who to know what's what as a Christian. Just read your Bibles. Well, the wise walk for us this morning is circumspect. It is concerned with God's saving plans in Christ. Finally, Paul reminds us that the way to walk wisely is by being filled. That is, being controlled by the power of and presence of God's own spirit. Let me just ask you a simple question. Who is in charge of your life? That's an awfully dangerous question to ask an American. Because we love our independence and we love to make our decisions. But let me tell you, I am not in charge of my life. Jesus Christ is. The only way to live, the only way to life is to lay it down and let Jesus rule it. Jesus must be in charge. You can't live the good life without God in it. G-O-D, God's got to be in good. You can't live the good life without God in your life. Paul has already done this several times in this passage, and I couldn't really unpack it because of time today, but he says the, the way to walk wisely is not this way, and it is this way. Did you notice that in the text? In verse 15, he says that. In verse 17, he says that. In verse 18, he says that. The way, the wise and worthy walk is not this way, but it is this way. And in verse 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, but, for that is debauchery. Literally, that is, and this is such an, an interesting thing, it's, debauchery literally means wasted living. What do we say of somebody who's hammered drunk? That they're wasted. That's what debauchery means. But be filled with the Spirit. So the wasted life is a wasted life. Simply put. Over in Romans 13, verse 11, Paul says something uh, strikingly similar. Romans 13, 11 and following, he says, Besides this, you know the time, and the word time is not chronos, it's kairos there. It's the same we've been talking about this morning. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. For the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Notice, not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Now, it's interesting when you study Paul's day, it seems that drunkenness may have been a particularly uh, big problem in the city of Ephesus at the temple of Artemis or Diana. Uh, Drinking alcohol was often... Part of what made your religious experience maybe heightened. And perhaps Paul is getting some at that crossover between secular and sacred, between what was happening in the temple and what should be happening in the church. But I want to make a point here. 
we know from Scripture, and this might be a little controversial, but I think the Scripture supports this. But you've got to listen carefully. don't want to have a line of people at my door after church. While consuming alcohol is not prohibited in the Bible, though it may be unwise, there are clear warnings against being controlled or being drunk by alcohol. You following me? A couple of examples. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 1 says this, Wine is a mocker. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23. This is hilarious. Proverbs 23, 29 and following. The writer says, Who has woe? And who has sorrow? Sounds like a country music song to me. Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? I can almost hear Garth Brooks's voice. Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Who do not look at wine when it is red. It says, verse 31, do not look at wine when it is red. When it sparkles in the cup and it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder or snake. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You ever heard that? You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Man, is that not an apt description of one who is controlled because they've consumed too much alcohol. I'm not making a statement here this morning that says, Pastor Dan says you can't drink alcohol, but you should be awfully careful if you do. Keep your testimony in mind. Keep the honor and glory of Christ in mind. If your conscience gives you freedom, if your conscience gives you freedom, I don't think the Bible prohibits it. But you need to make sure that you're doing all things, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Not seeking fulfillment in some substance because it never promises, it never provides what it promises. Being filled with too much alcohol makes one look and act foolish. That's Paul's point. And it leads to nothing good. Drugs and alcohol have a way of grabbing hold of the control panel of your life, and they lead always and only to destruction, to devastation, and to disappointment. So the wise one will be wary of alcohol and substances. But as we close, I want to point out something really interesting here. The passive command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a passive command. We can't go like making ourselves be filled with the Spirit. It must happen to us how when we trust or we have faith in Christ is followed by a series of five participles that all describe not how to be filled with the Spirit, but what it looks like when you are filled with the Spirit. Okay? And here they are. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody. There's the second. Making. Anytime you see an ING, speaking, making, uh, giving. Those are participles in, in your English Bible there. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, and submitting to one another 
out of reverence for five. Those five participles help to describe what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence of those that are filled with the Holy Spirit. They are doing those activities. These statements are subordinate to the passive command to be filled with God's own Spirit. It's interesting, Paul says over in Colossians 3, verses 14 to 17, something very similar. He says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Oh, how I pray for our church to be sweet harmony to God. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We can sum up the effects of being filled with the Spirit under these three points. Number one, being filled with the Holy Spirit is displayed in Christ's church when we join our voices together and stop arguing against one another, giving Christ-honoring praise to the Lord. Psalm 33.1 says, Praise befits the upright, the godly. Maybe you don't realize this, but our making music together, I mean literally making music with Brian and Mark and Israel and others up here, that itself is ministry. But let me tell you something. This is a whole sermon on its own. I don't sing for you. And you probably said, well, thanks a whole bunch. I've heard you sing. I don't sing for you. I sing for Jesus. But I do sing with you. And in a way, I sing to you. We sing for the glory of Almighty God. But we sing together to edify one another with the words of the songs that we sing. Our music is not ancillary or secondary or a sideshow. It is really, really central to what we do. How much theology do we teach each other in our songs? Uh, Alistair Vegg, a great uh, contemporary pastor in Ohio, says, If you want to understand a church's theology, you need to hear them sing. And Dane Ortland says something similar. He says, what a church sings tells you what they believe, and how they sing tells you if they really believe it. That's good. So our worship is ultimately aimed at God, but we also, in a sense, are aiming at each other when we sing because we are building each other up as we sing, speaking to one another. May that change the way we sing our song of response here in just a few moments. Singing with each other, to each other, for the Lord's glory. Number two, being filled with the Holy Spirit is displayed as well in the church of Christ when we rejoice in the goodness and the grace of God by giving Him thanks and by not griping and complaining about everything. We as Christians ought to be the most joyful people on the face of the planet. But man, oh man, are we good at finding stuff to argue about and complain about. It is absurd. It is ridiculous that Christians are often more known for what we are against than what we are for. If heaven came down and glory filled your soul, shouldn't there be a different tune that's coming off of our lips? Absolutely. 
Do the people around you catch a melody of salvation and and eternity and and happiness and joy in the Holy Spirit? Or they're like, yeah, I want to join that song. I mean, that's a downer. That song is the blues. No, that shouldn't be the way that we sing. And then thirdly, being filled with the Holy Spirit is displayed in the church when we willingly submit ourselves one to another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul does something very interesting in verse 21. He is both wrapping up and looking forward. I said earlier that this section is going to go all the way down to Ephesians 6 verse 9. Because submitting one to another is wrapping up these five participles of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it is beginning to stretch out what it looks like in the home, in the workplace. What we're going to look at over the next several weeks. What it looks like to submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. The word in the Greek means to rank oneself under a leader. Paul is going to expound this in the verses to come to show us what it looks like. And so, just as we close, be circumspect, be concerned, and be consumed or controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's instructions for us this morning, and I'm so grateful. I've had the privilege for more than six years now to examine a lot of your backswings. Use the old ball. No, no, no. Use the new ball. Use the new ball by the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the priceless and very precious promises of your word. Your precepts are true, and you give power to walk according to the precept. But, oh Lord, that power, it's not in us, it's in Jesus. But by faith, Jesus is in us. The power of Christ resides upon us and in us, and we thank you for that. Lord, I pray we'd be wiser for being here this morning. Not wiser according to the world, but wiser according to the word. Wiser according to to what heaven really is concerned about. But such that our earthly walk, this temporal uh, journey that we are on, will be uh, all the more glorifying to you and more effective for building your church. And we'll give you the praise and thanks all through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.